This is Macro Horizons, episode 87, II, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of September 21st. As we're now well into the institutional investor fixed income research polling season, we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who is still taking our calls and reading our messages. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed in the Treasury market was a defining one, but not insofar as we saw it play out in the price action. What was the most interesting development was from the Fed, and they made the transition to outcome-based forward guidance. But they did this transition in a way that allowed the committee to retain a great deal of flexibility. They didn't put a number on the unemployment target. And the way that they defined the target for inflation was 2%, not a surprise, on an average basis with expectations for inflation to accelerate beyond that. So if anything, the market's interpretation was somewhat disappointing, and we can see that as it's played out in risk assets, not insofar as the Fed didn't incrementally deliver yet another dovish step, but it was read as the least committal way to do it. Moreover, was one of the key aspects that the Fed didn't proceed with, and that was a change in the weighted average maturity of the purchases in the current QE program. Now, while most people were not expecting that to be a September event, what we did see was an initial re-steepening of the twos tens curve as a result with the long end of the curve leading the sell-off. Now, that price action was remarkably short-lived, and what almost immediately emerged was buying interest during the overnight session. So that 70 to 72 basis point level in 10-year rates remains defining and its key support in the event that we see another bearish impulse. We're tracking a downward sloping trend line in the 10-year sector, which is anchored at where the market started the beginning of September in 10s, let's call it roughly 75 basis points, and trends lower, leading right to the middle of the 67 to 68 basis point range in the next week or so. Now, this is relevant because the Treasury market is currently in the process of coiling, for lack of a better phrase. And once this trend line comes into play that increases the potential for a breakout in one direction or another. When we layer on top of that, the fact that year end is now almost in sight, we are very close to the fourth quarter, positions tend to be scaled back during this time frame, holding for the election, of course, because that will be the last big tradable event of 2020. We would expect that conviction and commitment to the steepening trade will start to lessen, As we progress toward year end, positions will lighten up 
and in no small amount of irony, that will actually create an ideal environment to see price action that is allowed to run and opens the possibility that we ultimately realize that re-steepening trade into the end of the year that we have been focused on. Re-steepening is a relatively intuitive argument given the fact that the two-year sector remains solidly anchored to monetary policy expectations. The Fed's recently published projections make it very clear that they have no intention of raising rates, at least not through 2023. So that gets us to 2024 before there's any possibility that the Fed might attempt to normalize monetary policy. Our expectations are that a great deal of positive developments would need to occur between now and that point for the Fed to actually bring rates off the effective lower bound in 2024. But there's little question that there is a lot of economic data and potentially a vaccine between now and then. So the Fed was clearly the main event of the week. Yet the price action really wasn't all that outsized. We still find ourselves in this range in 10-year yields. And really, a lot of the main themes we took coming into this week are unchanged. Yeah, Ben, I think that one of my primary takeaways from this week was how strong the range is in 10-year yields. We've been on about the range in U.S. Treasuries as a theme, but to come and go with a Fed that delivered on outcome-based forward guidance and still find ourselves with 10-year yields at 67, 68 basis points, I think is very telling. In fact, if we look back over the course of the last 28 trading sessions, all but five of them has seen the 68 basis point level in one way, shape, or form. So my takeaway is between 65 and 70 basis points is a clear equilibrium for the treasury market intends until we get something that truly redefines the macro narrative. Now, that didn't come from the Fed, but I do think it's interesting what we did get from the Fed. They transitioned to forward guidance that contains a specific level for inflation, i.e. 2%, and spoke in broader terms about the unemployment rate. Now, Given everything that's going on with the pandemic, the K-shaped recovery, et cetera, it really isn't surprising that they didn't want to put a number on the unemployment rate. Moreover, one of the Fed's big risks with outcome-based forward guidance is one of credibility. Imagine a situation where they say, if we get to these two objectives, we're effectively bound to start the process of normalizing rates. When we couple what they said In the statement with the forward projections, I think it's worth noting that in 2023, they have the unemployment rate reaching 4%, the inflation rate reaching 2%, and still they have no intention of bringing rates off of the lower bound. Now, presumably, there would be some conversation, if it hadn't already occurred, about scaling back the growth of the balance sheet, the composition of QE, et cetera, by that point. Again, we're now talking two or three years in terms of a timeline. The other thing quickly that I would add is that we didn't see an extension in the weighted average maturity of the Fed's existing QE program. We didn't think that that was a September event, but it did lead to an incremental re-steepening impulse, which ultimately ended up being a buying opportunity. However, 
it is something that will remain on the table and for that reason, presumably limit how far the curve can steepen until the point either they roll it out and we price it in or the Fed makes it clear that while it's a potential, it's a 2021 event. I think the other big takeaway is the last several months have been so heavily dominated by the Fed in the Treasury market, and we're now starting to pivot to a new regime. Now, let me unpack what I'm thinking here. If you go back to March, April, huge amounts of liquidity injections via all the alphabet soup, $75 billion a day in QE purchases, Fed cuts to the zero lower bound. Since then, we've had a setup for this long-run framework shift where the Fed goes to average inflation targeting and the setup for guidance that basically rates are going to stay at zero for years and QE is going to continue apace. Sure, there might be the weighted average maturity tweaks to QE, But the key nuance is that regardless, really, of who wins the presidential election, regardless of the next few months' economic policy, overnight rates aren't going anywhere. QE's not going anywhere. Perhaps it gets tweaked a little bit. Perhaps there's some Fed speak. But at a high level, we're in a rates at the effective lower bound, QE going full blast for quite some time. That's a very predictable event. What this means, then, is because of the predictable nature of that information, the market's not really going to reprice massively off of anything the Fed does. We saw this in the past week. Even though they came out with outcome-based forward guidance, Ian, your point about the stability of the range means that everybody kind of understood this dynamic already. Everybody knew rates were at zero for a while. Everybody knew QE was going. However, the next step in this thinking is that we've moved past the Fed driving the day-to-day back and forth in the market, and it leans instead more heavily on two other things, namely fiscal policy, either the expectation after the election or the possibility of a stimulus in the near term, and the path of the virus and any vaccine. These have always been in the background, but I would offer that especially now that we're 50 days from the election, we should prepare ourselves for the fiscal back and forth or the fiscal policy expectation component to take a little bit more of the driver's seat in moving rates up and down, if you will. I think we're on the same page insofar as those are two of the primary drivers. I would say that the path of the coronavirus outweighs any near-term fiscal impetus, although, to your point, I think in the very near term, we'll get more progress toward a fiscal deal than we will anything definitive on the virus front. So short-term, trade a fiscal plan. Long-term, keep an eye on the path of the pandemic. The market is currently expecting an update on progress toward a COVID-19 vaccine sometime between now and the end of the year. One of the aspects that I'll be focused on is the market's reaction to the incremental incoming information. My baseline assumption is that investors do not actually need a fully functional, ready-to-distribute vaccine by the end of the year to justify current valuations in equities, for one, risk assets more broadly, but also the outright level of yields. I suspect that if we get enough confirmation via the phase three trial results and the information communicated from health officials that we're 
on the right track that we could still find ourselves in a position in Q1 with no definitive path for timing on a vaccine and nonetheless equity valuations near record highs and attention shifting to the progression of the domestic economy through the coronavirus recession. One interesting question I received from a client this week is, is the economy at risk of a wily e. Coyote moment if another fiscal stimulus does not end up coming through? In other words, if the current support measures run out around, call it year end or over the next few months, will we face an extremely adverse negative economic feedback loop? And I'm skeptical of that occurring because I guess the way I see it, there are really only two options of what could occur. One, the government support pulls back and the economy proves more resilient than we would expect, in which case this is not an apocalyptic scenario. Sure, there's probably some damage, but we'll keep muddling through. The second is if the government support runs out and it's increasingly obvious that the economy is about to be in a whole world of pain, well, I think the political dynamic changes around the fiscal negotiations in that point. In other words, one of the reasons we haven't gotten a new fiscal program is because the unemployment rate is falling faster than expected, equities are doing quite well. If all of a sudden there's a serious risk that the economy is going to tip over into a double-dip recession and equities are dropping like a rock, I think that the two sides and the fiscal negotiations come together extremely quickly. So what I mean by all this is to believe that the economy would tip over and equities would completely collapse if there's no stimulus deal, one also has to believe that even in a double-dip recession or something akin to that, we wouldn't get a change of minds and a new compromise to get a fiscal program out there. So where does that leave us on net? Ian, to your point, it actually kind of speaks to a stronger resiliency in some of these risk asset valuations than you might otherwise expect given the level of P.E. ratios. And timing, of course, matters, because if we find ourselves facing a more dire set of economic outlooks right before the election or sometime during the month of October, I would still expect that it will be more challenging for the two sides to come together given the proximity to the election and the calculus around the politics. Although given the way that the economic data has been behaving thus far, I expect that there won't be any reckoning for the real economy until after the election, if not into 2021. And there's a point on risk assets here worth making, I think. And this is something I'd heard talked a lot about over the summer when stocks continued to grind higher and higher and higher and higher is that during that time, valuations were moving to match sort of this period we're in right now that we've been discussing, where the economy continues to muddle along. Sure, there's still risks associated with another resurgence of the virus and just the passage of time continuing to weigh on the corporate sector. But it's this idea that equities repriced to this current level. And now we've kind of entered this chapter where it's up to the fundamentals to sort of catch up with valuations. And I don't have a strong lean one way or another, but this idea does sort of mesh with this temporary, maybe not weakness in stocks, but retracement from these fresh all-time highs. And now we're sort of seeing a consolidation, call it 5 6% off the peaks that were set just a few weeks ago. I think part of what's going on in the equity market is at least in part a degree of disappointment with the Fed or at a minimum the passage of the Fed event risk to the upside for equities. Nothing was really delivered that left the market 
chasing stocks. And so, as you point out, Ben, we're in this period of consolidation. One of the questions I've received a couple times recently is that given the notion we're open to rates drifting higher into the year, would the Fed allow that? Is that something that the Fed would be comfortable with, say, 10-year yields at 1% to end 2021? So the answer is twofold. If the Treasury market sells off because the economic outlook is improving, I think it's a lot more difficult for the Fed to say, oh, we have a problem. We're going to need to shift the weighted average maturity of QE purchases to flatten the curve. If it is a supply concern, I think that that changes the dynamic a little bit. Although, to be fair, I'm not expecting that it will be a supply concern between now and the end of the year. The other nuance is that the Fed is very focused on delivering lower borrowing costs to the end user. And so I'll be watching the mortgage basis, which continues to drift a bit lower in the context of a backup in 10-year yields. If it's occurring at a point where the mortgage basis is compressing and outright mortgage levels remain where they are or lower, I don't think that Powell and company will have the same urgency to get in front of that type of a move. I think the other imperative distinction to make is whether that scenario is being driven by higher real yields or higher inflation expectations via break-evens. It's a very different thing if 10-year real yields stay near negative 1% while break-evens drift to 2%, getting you that 1% 10-year nominal yield. That's actually a very encouraging sign for the Fed and one that they would not push back against as it indicates a recentering of inflation expectations around 2%. On the other hand, if we're starting to see real yields drift higher, that actually could start to choke off some of the recovery. And that's, I think, where you see the Fed come back in either by upsizing QE, changing the weighted average maturity or something else. You know, it's been a few weeks since we've talked about yield curve control. Maybe they don't go that far, but it wouldn't surprise me in that type of scenario if all of a sudden at least it's being mentioned as a tool again. We're talking about a relatively small backup in rates in the context of a glut of treasury supply that is poised to hit the market and continues to hit the market. Ben, we do have uh, twos, fives, and sevens next week. Definitely the last nominal supply of the third quarter. What's your take on recent auction performance? Yeah, in conversations all of us are having, supply continues to be that one background theme that sort of is a bullet point on the list of factors that could be pointing toward higher yields. Unfortunately, what we've seen at auctions recently is evidence exactly to the contrary. Twos, fives, and sevens this week are once again going to be record large auctions, with twos and fives $2 billion larger than last month and sevens $3 billion larger than last month. But yet everything we've seen almost across the curve on the supply front recently suggests that we're still some ways off from seeing any cracks in primary market demand for treasuries. And on this week in particular, especially given what we heard from the Fed, the fact that Powell is actively in the process of telegraphing the intention to keep rates at zero out through the end of 2023 really is a positive for twos, threes, fives, and arguably sevens which is just another reason to expect that we'll see a round of solid auction sponsorship, even if early in the week there is a slight risk of a move toward, if not through, the top of the local yield ranges. Remember last month, despite valuations being roughly where they are right now, twos, fives, and sevens all stopped through and were all record large auctions. 
So the takeaway is it's going to be a, another record round for treasury auctions. And John Hill is keeping it reals. Wait, are you saying I've been getting increasingly negative all year? Well, if it's any consolation, yields and break-evens are a construct and everything actually just trades in price. Is any of this real? Or reals. In the week ahead, the Treasury market has remarkably few fundamental inputs from which to derive trading direction. We do have a few housing reports, existing homes being the first on Tuesday, followed by new home sales on Thursday. We get an update on durable goods, but the fact of the matter is that the range that's been so consistent in the treasury market, call it 60 basis points to 78 basis points in 10-year yields, has very little chance of breaking between now and month end at the earliest. And the fact of the matter is we're actually targeting the range to hold all the way through until the wake of the election when we have a clear defined result from the presidential House and Senate elections. In the interim, we'll be attempting to play the extremes of the curve. So a bit of a re-steepening could provide an opportunity to book some profits uh, up against that 72 to 75 range in tens, and then the flip side being selling opportunities the closer that we get to the 60 basis point level. We do have some supply on the horizon. We have 52 billion two years, 53 billion five years, and 50 billion seven years. If anything, that should limit downward pressure on front-end yields as the fourth quarter comes into view. We're still a week away from month and quarter end, but it will be especially important this round given what we saw in funding space in 2019. The Fed is very active in the funding market at this point, and eyes will be on the quarter-end dynamic as expectations are further refined for the year-end turn. Also on the horizon over the course of the next couple of weeks is the non-farm payrolls print for the month of September. Now, we were admittedly surprised with how well the August data came in, given the increase in COVID-19 cases and all the uncertainty associated with that as it applies to the employment market. Now, in September, the question then becomes, what has happened when some of those key government programs have rolled off? Were employees ultimately let go, which would obviously put downward pressure on non-farm payrolls. On the encouraging side, what we have seen was a stabilization in initial jobless claims at roughly that 850,000 level. The most recent print was for NFP survey week. So as it pertains to expectations for the BLS's official release, if there is at some point going to be a correction lower, it appears to be a Q4 event, at least for the time being. A watchful eye on COVID-19 case counts remains warranted, particularly as in-person education picks up with the back-to-school season. Certainly in the Northeast, there's been a lot of focus on how the process plays out and whether or not in-person education is going to be viable for the balance of 2020. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as a reminder, we truly appreciate your support in this year's Institutional Investor Survey. If you've already weighed in, please let us know. I'd love to hear any positive feedback. Criticism and opportunities for improvement can be directed to BIN. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. 
please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.